everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. Last week, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, wrote a pastoral letter to the High Point Church family in regards to gathering as a church during the COVID-19 pandemic. This episode is the audio version of that letter. Like everyone, we've had to make a lot of adjustments and remain fluid in this situation, so Nick wanted to teach and exhort us and explain some of our decisions. You can find the print version of this letter on our blog at hpcmadison.com. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. To the High Point Church family in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, written by Pastor Nick Gibson. For 2,000 years, pastors have written to the congregations they serve with spiritual advice, commands, and encouragement in times of need. This was not only true of the apostles, but also church fathers and bishops like St. Athanasius. Martin Luther wrote to European Christians in the 16th century in an essay entitled, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. It's still worth reading. The current pandemic may not be as deadly as some of the ancient plagues, but it is deadly for some, and this may not be the last pandemic that we face in our lifetime. Many Christians recognize the big picture in relationship to faith in Christ when facing disease. In life or death, we belong to Christ. Jesus has called us to live in faith, not in fear, but we are also told that faith is not the same as foolishness. Faith and wisdom are never opposed to each other, and yet they are both opposed to cowardice. Christians generally understand that we are to live in the divine triumvirate of faith, hope, and love, that we should serve our neighbors, believe that God is ultimately in control of all things, even suffering, and that we should act with wisdom in our daily choices. Much can be said about these basic and fundamental Christian truths. However, the church can easily become divided in a situation like this over questions of conscience and wisdom. For example, is it religious persecution for the government to say that we can't have our normal meetings? Does worshiping with a virtual source count as worship? If the church opens, should everyone have the conviction that they should attend? Should we be deferential and and obedient to the government in their regulations? In this letter, I will focus on three important parts of the Bible's teaching and outline our plan for gathering again so that we can move forward in the coming weeks not only in wisdom and faith, but also in unity. First, the Bible teaches in many places that every Christian is called to be an active, covenantal, and familial participant in a concrete local church whenever possible. Christians should seek to form a local church whenever one is not present, and this can only be neglected in extreme circumstances. For example, if you are the only Christian in 100 square miles of rural North Korea. However, does it follow that we must meet every week on Sunday in a particularly marked church building, as is our ancient custom? Scripture seems to teach that the earliest Christians probably met on, quote, the first day of the week, close quote, which is presumably our Sunday. Three scriptures seem to state this. Acts 20, verse 7, says that people gathered together for a meeting that lasted until the next day, and that this meeting was on, quote, the first day of the week, close quote. But though the reference tells us when the meeting happened, it doesn't tell us that this was a normative time for the church to meet. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, people are told to set aside a financial gift, quote, on the first day of every week. This is so that no time will be used to collect money when the Apostle Paul arrives to carry the church's gift to Jerusalem. It does not include any normative commandment about 
when worship should take place or why. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle John says, quote, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, close quote. Here, presumably, the first day of the week is simply referred to as the Lord's day, as though the concept was already established and everyone would know what that meant. However, in the case of Acts 20, verse 7, since Jews counted days from evening to evening, that meeting would have been on Saturday night and continuing over to Sunday morning. In fact, it's likely that most Christian churches met on Saturday night after the Sabbath had concluded, the Sabbath spanning from Friday evening to sundown on Saturday evening. We're also told precious little in Scripture about exactly what should happen in our worship services, or exactly when they should meet. Early in the book of Acts, people are meeting in the temple to hear the apostles' teaching and are meeting, quote, day by day, close quote, in people's homes. As the New Testament moves forward, no prescription is given for a day of worship, a time of worship, the frequency of meetings, how many people make up a meeting, and so forth. Instead, these things are left up to the prudential wisdom of Christians. While we are given general commandments about what should be included in our worship, what should be our goals, what faith and godliness looks like, and that we should do these things, quote, often, close quote. This leads to the most specific verse that focuses on the times and frequencies of our meeting, Hebrews 10, verse 25. It says, open quote, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The most literal contention here is the command to, quote, not give up meeting together, close quote. In the context of the pandemic, this command has led some Christians to believe churches should simply continue their previous meeting schedule in obedience to this command. Other believers have claimed that this quotation does not even apply, does not apply, sorry, other believers have claimed that this quotation does not apply to extenuating circumstances in which our health could be at risk. However, Hebrews makes clear that these Christians are worshiping in the context of intense persecution, which includes the, quote, plundering of their possessions, close quote. In addition to having their private property taken, the apostle also includes an entire chapter on the suffering of God's martyrs in Hebrews chapter 11. This is no doubt included because of the severity of the suffering he expects the Hebrews to face, which clearly could include profound personal suffering, even martyrdom. So we should not too easily dismiss our earnest Christian brother or sister who believes that this verse says that we should not stop meeting together in our normal way, even in the worst possible circumstances, including during a pandemic, and even if the government says we shouldn't. Conversely, extreme circumstances are also the context for the biblical command to obey those in civil authority. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul tells us to obey the government in absolute language as though it is instituted by God. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2 say this, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This was said even though Nero was the emperor and the current government was murdering Christians. 1 Peter 2, verses 12 to 15, tells us to obey every authority instituted in our society, whether on the federal or local level. The purpose of this is not only that authority is in itself good, bringing order out of chaos, but that we are to, quote, silence the ignorant talk of foolish men, close quote, 
Presumably, this means the ignorant talk that because we are citizens of heaven, we are no longer under the practical jurisdictions of men, and are therefore bad citizens. This is not the case. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, we are commanded to pray for all of those in authority. This is meant to help them see that they can leave us alone to live in peace and quiet. The result should be that godliness would thrive among us and that people would see its beauty and turn to God who wants, quote, all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, close quote. So not only are we instructed to obey authority because it is ordained by God, but because it is also integral to the reputation of God's truth in our city. Obeying authority is critical to living honorably and des- and deserving a good name, and consequently adorning God's name in the minds of our societal neighbors. This does not mean that there are no exceptions to the rule. Peter and John obey, disobey the Jewish rulers when they are commanded not to speak about Jesus and his salvation. In Acts 4, 19-20, it says this, But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Additionally, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus are blessed by God for disobeying Pharaoh's orders to kill Jewish boys when they were born because they, quote, feared God, close quote. They knew that to obey the king would be to directly disobey God, the greater and truer king. Therefore, our duty to obey right authority is foundational, but it does not admit our disobedience when such a command requires us to disobey a direct command of God. We could also note the disobedience of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were all commended by God. So the question we must answer with good conscience is, are we disobeying the general commands of worship and fellowship given to Christians and to the local church by worshiping only according to what our government allows during a pandemic? This requires us to take stock of the minimum actions that amount to worship and fellowship as outlined in the scriptures. First, there is no direct commandment as to the day we must meet nor the time. We are told to, quote, not stop meeting together, close quote. This must mean that meetings should be frequent. The purpose of these meetings in Hebrews 10, 25 is to, quote, encourage one another, close quote, towards perseverance until the return of Jesus. This mean, this meeting has no minimum number of participants so long as it is plural. Two or three might suffice. The church is commanded to read scripture publicly, submit to the shepherding of elders, hear the word of God preached, worship in song and prayer, fulfill the one another commands, there's about 27 of them, baptize new believers, celebrate the Lord's Supper, exert church discipline, and spread the gospel as the work of making disciples of all nations. Can we do this almost entire can we do this using almost entirely virtual tools while confined in our households? I believe the answer is yes, at least for some period of time. At some point, virtual meetings are not sufficient for the human soul, and people who do not gather are scattered. This is why house church movements are so dis- difficult to cultivate. Gathering in a large church makes it much easier to gather people, yet large churches are not necessarily are not necessary for us to be the body of Christ. Not having them in operation makes it harder and less convenient. But we are not precluded from worshiping, praying, or doing any of the works and worship we are commanded to do under these restrictions. What we must face is that it takes discipline and maturity. 
We have to organize ourselves. We have to check in on people ourselves. We have to exhort and encourage one another. We must do for free and out of love what is fitting for those God has made brothers and sisters and those who he has made into one body. We must be a people who can be the body of Christ without a building and without a budget. For this is what we may have to do one day, not only in a pandemic, and it and what may many of the body of Christ are now doing in various places of the world. We should be cognizant of our rights in a free society governed by laws that should apply to everyone the same rather than by men who will do as they please. However, the biblical examples argue for justice on the basis of truth while in a posture of obedience to the government, except for in the most extreme circumstances. So Christians can speak against government policies and use rights of speech, petition, and assembly to change policies and to advocate for their rights, as well as the rights of others. And some have done this. This leads to two concluding areas of action once we begin gathering again, and eventually reopen our building's doors. First, all Christians must respect the earnest conscience of others acting in faith who are trying to obey Christ. Most human decisions are not right and wrong in themselves. They are prudential decisions, decisions made on the principles of wisdom, utilizing our best perceptions of, what's, of what is happening. We make prudential decisions by weighing the voices of many virtues and the varied commands of God. Our varied perceptions and conceptualizations are imperfect and may lead people of the same convictions and faith to very different decisions concerning how we should act. In such circumstances, love must press for unity in the body of Christ by respecting and accommodating the conscience of others. There are limits to this principle, but only express and explicit commands of God fence in the earnest conscience, trying to act in faith. In Romans 14, an example of where this principle is expounded, one of the differences of opinion about which we are not to judge each other, is how we esteem the significance of certain days. In the context of the passage, these are probably the festival days of the Old Testament. But this is a disagreement about the times and places of worship, and the apostle says that we should not judge each other over these things. We should not allow the disunity to fester among us that comes from despising those who are conservative or judging those who have a more liberal conscience. For this to work, both groups must seek the truth in Christ, search the scriptures, and stay in fellowship with each other. Practically, as we roll out the reopening of the church services, we will not all agree on how this should be done. Some believe that we were wrong to ever close services. Others have asked to be present in services already. Some have informed us that we should not open for some time. Others have said that they will not come for some time, but affirm the church reopening if that's what the elders decide. I've been encouraged by the humility and the earnestness to honor Jesus that I have encountered among people who are acting in opposite ways. I believe this can please the Lord if we can also love and accept one another, even while debating with one another in humility and honest discourse. Jesus demands that we find unity even in the midst of giving others freedom of conscience in many matters. Concerning the reopening of the church, our plan needs to be fluid. The country has made clear that it, it reserved the right I'm sorry, the county has made clear that it reserves the right to move back and forth in levels of openness and quarantine depending on infection rates and other indicators. So for the foreseeable future, we will continue to at least live stream one service of worship each Sunday. 
This will remain the case until we communicate the next phase of reopening. Since we have started live streaming, some have attended worship much more regularly. Pray for God to use this time to draw many people deeper into the covenantal community of the church. The second step, which we have not yet reached, is to meet in groups of 10 or fewer to worship together along with the streamed worship services. Moving to small group meetings for worship allows us to meet together to encourage one another in persevering faith and good works. This is an adequate means of fellowship and personal contact that treats people as fully human in their spiritual and social needs. We will communicate with you once we are either legally or conscientiously able to meet in this way. Though the public order says that we should use virtual means in every way possible, we cannot neglect personally meeting with a small group of people any longer than is absolutely necessary. Gathering in small groups that are connected to virtual worship allows us to meet the basic necessities of Christian worship in the present moment while minimizing risks of infection to ourselves and to our neighbors. These small groups should be no more than 10 people and should be of the same people every week. This way, if someone is infected, we will know fairly easily who has been in contact with that person and who will need to quarantine themselves. Also, make sure that the 10 you choose is not exclusive of those that will get left out. Structure those who invite structure those you invite to include friends as well as those that need a friend because Jesus told us to invite all the people that couldn't do anything for us. Just look at Luke 14 verses 12 to 14. Hopefully fairly soon things will move more back to normal and we will be able to reopen Sunday services as normal. Right now, though circum though churches can meet at 25% occupancy, there are many onerous requirements for those meetings, and so we will not gather in our church building until further notice. For High Point Church, even 25% capacity is a disease-spreading nightmare, especially in our space. 25% capacity in our sanctuary alone is more than 200 people. These actions are in line with the advice of numerous healthcare workers that we have consulted in the last week who are part of High Point Church. Finally, do not tell yourself that this will all be over soon. We have no idea what the next months or the next year will bring. If you plan for an end to the difficulties, your resolve will break when the hardship extends. Choose to trust God in each moment and plan for the future only long enough to do your duty and have hope that God will use you for some eternal good that circumstances can neither steal nor spoil. Find your happiness in God and in people who last forever in present graces, like sunshine, and in pursuing godliness. Life's greatest joys do not come by changes in trials, and most wholesome roots of meaning are expanded in hardship, not contracted. You do not have fewer eternal opportunities in these days. You have more, regardless of what happens to our bank accounts or our health. Even when our bodies are wasting away, we can be renewed inwardly day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16 let us give to everyone what duty owes them, first to God, then to our governing authorities, to the fellowship of believers, in generosity to the poor, and to those yet not believing among our neighbors. Grace to all who love the Lord Jesus with an undying love. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. 
If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.